welcome to Suede. My name is Sarah Osteen, and I am very pleased to be speaking with Adam Foss today. This is pretty exciting for me. Uh, Adam is a former assistant district attorney in the Suffolk County District Office in Boston, uh, which is where I'm from. Uh, And he is currently the uh, executive director of Prosecutor Impact. So we're going to be having a conversation today about his career and his perspective on uh, incarceration and the impact that he's making to change that. So, Adam, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your progression to executive director of Prosecutor Impact. What, what influenced you to pursue a career as a criminal prosecutor and how did you end up here? Uh, Sarah, thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here. Um, what brought me here? Uh, it's, it was just like a series of things that I had no intentions of getting into in the first place and resulted in uh, us being where we are now, which is running this organization, trying to stem the tide of mass incarceration. Um, went to law school sort of just because of the, the economy and, and uh, w- what the job market looked like. Didn't intend to be in the criminal justice system when I got into law school, um, but did an internship in a court that sort of like changed all of that. Um, and you know, sort of like set my North Star on being a public defender, had a bunch of experiences um, working sort of on the defense side that made me realize that if I did want to solve problems, it would happen on the other side. As a prosecutor, um, became a prosecutor and was frustrated uh, a lot of the time with sort of like lots of things. But the core thing about what frustrated me was just that I was never given the tools that I needed to understand populations that were coming into the system and therefore made me ineffective at solving those problems. So we built Prosecutor Impact to address that core issue. Yeah. And are are you from Massachusetts? Originally, I was born in um, uh, Columbia uh, in South America, and then I grew up uh, predominantly on the North Shore of Massachusetts up uh, in a little town called Pepperell. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know Pepperell. Great. And so, and were and you when you were um, uh, an assistant district attorney, were you in Roxbury? Is that right? Yeah, uh, half of my career was in the Roxbury Division of Boston Municipal Court, and then the other half was in the central um, downtown court court buildings uh, in the juvenile court, predominantly prosecuting juvenile crime. Okay, and. Uh, I've watched your TED Talk, and which for anybody who's listening, I highly recommend. I'll put the link in your your bio. Uh, but uh, you uh, you you do make a comment about sort of some of your initial reasons for going to, to law school, which is like many people, which is sort of money driven. Um, how did you end up doing an internship, or how did you end end up in the assistant district attorney office? Um, so I. You know, like because I was sort of going into law school, not really knowing what I was what I was doing there, other than just like maybe I'll, you know, get a good job coming out of this. Uh, I I missed a lot of the things that people do in their first year of law school in, in terms of like, um, you know, going into on campus interviews or networking or anything like that. Um, and just had the fortune of this wonderful professor who wasn't even mine. Uh, she's just someone that that I knew through some organizations at school. Um, just suggested that I do this internship with a judge in Roxbury and that judge uh, and the judges in that chamber went on to introduce me to 
um, young prosecutors in the Roxbury office who then became like lifelong friends and mentors. Yeah. And it sounds like you pretty early on saw a, a need and a, a problem that you were interested in. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know that I saw the problem as one that I was interested in. I was really like the job was just really appealing. Um, you know, the, the sort of the things that young people, like when I was a young person I cared about was just like, Oh, it's exciting. And there's action all the time. And, uh, you know, at its core, like the optics of it, you could just see there was a, a fundamental problem. Um, but I didn't, I don't think that I knew enough then to say like, Oh, this is a vehicle I'm going to use to change the system. It was just, um, again, a series of, of really consequential events that I didn't know were coming. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously it turned out for the best, best possible scenario. So, um, I'm, I'm glad that that's the path you chose. So tell me a little bit about the unique power that criminal prosecutors hold in terms of addressing the issue of mass incarceration. Sure. Um, the prosecutors because of this discretion that is was given to them by whoever created this profession um, and by the courts who have sort of like defined the roles and the legislatures that have defined sort of governmental power, somehow prosecutors just like were exempt from uh, much oversight. And so, you know, prosecutors elected um, or, or appointed in some place, mostly elected, um, and they stay in that position for four year, you know, for a four year term. They appoint a bunch of people to be assistants, um, and all of those folks are given the discretion to change people's lives, uh, basically from day one. Um, that discretion uh, is used to decide who to charge, how to charge them, how many charges to um, ask for. Uh, all of those things then determine sort of the way that the rest of the case plays out, including. Um, plea bargaining, sentencing, you know, jail, prison terms, and even sometimes parole. And uh, because of that un- of that power, um, you see sort of like you see mass incarceration. There's a at least a correlation, if not a causation, between the rise in use of prosecutorial power and the severity of the use of that power and mass incarceration. John Pfaff, uh, in his book Locked In, does a really good job of describing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I know that there is a long and complicated history of the relationship between prosecutors and local government and police. And so it sort of begs the question to me, what what is the upside for a prosecutor when knowing that he or she is going to be recognized and congratulated for winning cases? It sounds like what you're talking about is kind of taking a closer look at the types of a number of charges and that and along with a variety of other issues. But if you're suggesting that prosecutors take a closer look at that and maybe don't charge as much, what what is the benefit to the in, the prosecutor on an individual level? Uh, the prosecutor on the individual level uh, could receive a lot of benefit from this. And I'm not at all suggesting that we just like it's about a cap, like dollars and cents in terms of the number of charges. It's, it's something much, much deeper um, that really is about the culture and philosophy of, of being there. Um, the benefit is that uh, all of this revolves around public safety and achieving public safety and achieving long-term public safety. Um, 
This is not about sort of like changing prosecutorial power to end mass incarceration for mass incarceration's sake. This is looking at mass incarceration and recognizing because of the wielding of this discretion and the decisions that we've made um, against, you know, sort of like fear and mythology, uh, we've, we've made us less safe. And so how do we look at deconstructing mass incarceration as a safety mechanism? And that is something that prosecutors should want to get behind. I'm not, uh, I'm not taking away the win. I'm, I'm sort of like we're, we're rerouting what a win looks like. Yeah. And that's the fascinating and like sort of the most strategic part of all of this. So it feels like this is not just an issue for prosecutors, but also for, I don't know, the public as a whole or the government. Are there, are there other people that need to be influenced as part of this process? The public. So going back to earlier question about the discretion of prosecutors, the, the only people that can check the discretion of prosecutors is the general public, unless there's like an ethical violation, which almost never happens. Uh, or, you know, like nothing rises to the level of an, eth- an actual ethical violation or, or criminal violation. Um, the public is the only one, is the only entity that has a check on prosecutors. And of course, because of the way that it works, like you don't, ch- you can't check my individual prosecutorial behavior. You can check my boss being the district attorney by your vote and maybe like a stern phone call or protest. But it's like this, that uh, non-check on the discretion makes us also not need anybody else's permission to go in a different direction. So while we, you know, like while everything would work if the courts and the police uh, and the public writ large were on board, tomorrow a district attorney could, uh, having been newly elected, could radically alter what the office does for the next four years without without much uh, power to repeal what they're doing from anybody else. Right. Um, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I guess I'm sort of wondering, you know, watching your TED talk, you, you're very focused on, on data and collecting information to demonstrate the, the benefits of taking a closer look at mass incarceration. So what is some of, what are some of the changes that you have seen based on the work that you and your team are doing to, to influence change? Sure. I don't, I don't want to make any link between the work that we're seeing. It's too early to make any sort of like links like that. Anecdotally I'll tell you that, that I've seen mindset in young prosecutors in ways uh, that are really promising. If we're trying to change, change culture, uh, we've seen young, pros- young prosecutors come together and support each other when times got hard and people are pushing back on them, which is something that we should all be starting. Um, but it's, it's far too early to say because of that, we're having an impact on mass incarceration. Um, what, what I will say is working um, uh, is, is sort of like, and, and again, when I say working, I mean, uh, we're starting to see things, good things happen, like jail populations going down, um, uh, motion being given to diversion and treatment and community, uh, you know, prosecutors withstand blowback when settlers are because they recognize this is about harm reduction. It's not about like getting to perfection. Um, because of, you know, like the very fundamental mindset shift of maybe we should start measuring everything that we're doing and looking at the data and and let it tell, let the data tell us what we need to, um, not only, not only is it like a learning and good, a good practice to have, but when you give that data to the public in the way that Kim Fox did in Chicago, 
now you're talking about rebuilding community trust, which goes hand in hand with the success of any progressive prosecutor. Yeah. So why is there this history of prosecutors not being progressive and overcharging on crimes as a form of intimidation? Like, how did we get to that point? Uh, confluence of two things. One is is sort of what we've been talking about. When you don't measure things and you you're not learning what is working, you will hang on to the easy things to count, even if those things aren't working. So for me, like the biggest irony about prosecutors and, and the metrics that we're measured by is like, we're all about evidence. Like we build cases with evidence and all of the evidence about our criminal justice system and what we do, like the, the criminal, you know, the criminal record and the, and the lasting impact of that, the impact of long sentences, the impact of that on crime. Uh, we, with all this evidence in our face, we still measure ourselves in, in one way or another on those metrics. Uh, and I don't think it's because we're, we're, we're dumb. I think it's a very like natural thing to do when you're not, when you're bankrupt for other pieces of information, other incentives. So in, in changing sort of like the metric system, um, I think you get closer to uh, behaviors that we want to see. Yeah. Yeah. And so are you changing that metric system in the eyes of the public or where is that change taking place? Yeah. I mean, so you have, you have to do that. Um, there's a lot of education that needs to happen. So, so like that was, that is one piece of the, of the confluence is the metric system. The other piece is fear. Uh, we got here through, through fear, um, you know, of, of crime, of, of people of color, um, and it just drove things through the roof. Um, and, and when I say fear, I don't just mean like, uh, you know, terror. I mean, uh, you know, bake in some racism, um, bake in some classism, and you've got yourself a tinderbox for mass incarceration. Um, and, and those things are sort of like where the culture building needs to happen, both in the public sphere, who... You know, there's a vast majority of the public that thinks the criminal justice system is working well in their homes and, and they think that they're safe because, you know, the bad guys aren't aren't getting to them because they're locked away somewhere, which is, you know, a, a, a sad fallacy that people uh, somehow convince themselves are true. Yeah. <clears throat> what so what's the relationship like between you and the the police system? Have they been supportive of this or is that? maybe not even relevant to you. What's been the response of, of, from the police perspective? Um, so we, we are inclusive, like obviously uh, the police are partners of prosecutors. We would love for them to be part of these trainings because what's good for us is good for them. Um, they, they play a different role and they put up with things that I had the privilege not to being a, you know, suited up person in an office. Um, and I say that uh, to, suggest that, you know, like the relationship with police is what, whatever they want it to be. I, I grew up with a police officer as a father. Uh, I have a lot of respect for them. Um, we've focused on prosecutors and particularly young prosecutors as like a focal point. Um, I know that there are police officers that don't like what we're doing. Um, there are prosecutors that don't like what we're doing. Um, and that is just a, a reality. And I, I don't have to condition something so much it's very difficult, particularly when safety is involved, to think about doing anything different. Yeah. Do you have a, a plan kind of over time to 
to get the police more involved in these trainings or um, is that still sort of early stage? It's, I mean, it's early stage, but it's not, you know, like one of the things I kick myself about all the time is that I named this organization Prosecutor Impact because, um, you know, when I think about sort of the failings of the criminal justice system, um, they are resonant or of failings of other public institutions like the public school system, public health system, and police departments in terms of like, there's just a, uh, I, I don't want this to sound pejorative, but it's like a lack of cultural competency leads to mistrust and mistrust leads to non-engagement and non-engagement leads to problems. Um, and so like thinking about, you know, if I analogize a young prosecutor to a young teacher, I went to Roxbury with a bunch of other young people um, on our first day as prosecutors. And for a lot of us, it was our first time spending any meaningful time in Roxbury, the neighborhood. And, and there we were seeing, seeing things that none of us had ever had to experience in, in any sort of magnitude, let alone the magnitude that people were experiencing in Roxbury. And we were being asked to make really important decisions about them. And so you make the analogy to like a young teacher who lives a very nice and privileged life and they go to really good schools, they get their master's in education. And then they, they, you know, they want to do the, let me go to Brooklyn or let me go to Detroit. And they, they go to a really tough middle school, an underperforming middle school. And they know, they know all the things they went to, they went to a great graduate school and they know all the uh, content and curriculum and the, and the songs and all the things they don't know how to deal with a nine-year-old boy who's like very aggressively uh, having a tantrum uh, because we're not, we don't, we don't learn about the things that we need to, like the things that matter in terms of what's driving people's behavior in the, in the communities that we serve in. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're describing my life a little bit. A long, long time ago, I did a program similar to Teach for America uh, in uh, East Palo Alto, California, and kind of went in dreamy-eyed thinking I could uh, have some kind of impact without any kind of uh, training or awareness on really what the, the history of these kids' lives and, and what that means for them. So... Uh, so if you could rename it, what would you rename your, your nonprofit? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But but something sort of more inclusive of... Way more inclusive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a long way to, you know, like, yes, uh, we do we do engage with them now. We, in, our, in our prosecutor training in Philadelphia, we had um, two panels where, involving officers um, giving young prosecutors sort of like time to have cold conversations with them as opposed to what we sort of experienced, which is in the fire of the morning of a, of a court case. It's just like not the time to be talking about larger systemic issues with the police. Right. Right. Um, so this is kind of a good transition point. When, what made you want to start uh, this, this nonprofit? Like, was there sort of a moment in time when you realized that, you know, that this is how you could have a bigger impact or what was that transition like? Uh, the transition was very rapid. Um, and it was, it wasn't even until sort of like after the Ted talk, like I didn't have any intention of doing anything except being a prosecutor. Um, and I was at a, you know, a conference with, uh, some, you know, really successful entrepreneurs who, were like asking me questions that I hadn't, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about scope or scale or any of those things. Uh, I didn't at the time. I mean, and 
this, you know, somebody said, uh, you know, if you had all, the, if you had all the money in the world, uh, if money wasn't an issue, what would you do? What would you be your, your solve? What would be your fix? And I, and I, you know, I just said sort of like, I think we go for the really sexy things when we're thinking about any mass incarceration. We've leapt over the assumption that the people who are working day to day on the ground, uh, got the right equipment coming out the door. And so if there was anything that I would do, it would be to build a school where they would be like, you know, heavy duty, like training for this, for this job. And that was, that was literally the beginning. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a wild ride since then, but we're, we're off and running. That's awesome. And what, what are the biggest obstacles that you're facing right now? Um, just the, just the newness of it, you know, the novelty of it is challenging um, because there are, there are some close analogs, but uh, undertaking something that's never been done before is, is an obstacle in of itself. Um, and because of that, uh, you know, uh, execute, like executing with, with clarity and vision is, is difficult, um, at least to like a, a person like me who, you know, if it's not perfect and if I'm not doing it well really, really quickly, then I have a tendency to like leave it, you know? Um, and then, uh, just keeping people's patience long enough to understand that this, this solution while, while to us at PI is, is the most efficient, effective way to see massive scale improvement, um, in a short period of time, uh, you know, that it's still going to take a decade to see sort of the long-term payoffs of why we think this is that solution. Yeah. So just being patient is hard. <laughs> and yeah, I, I mean, yeah. all around, all around it, it, it takes up, you know, like we have to check ourselves and just be like, you know, uh, don't, don't look at the stock market daily. It's all about the long, the long run. Um, you know, investors, uh, partner, you know, partnerships, it's, it's, a it's a heavy lift for a lot of people to be like, no, trust us. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's going to pay off. We just might never see it. Yeah. Um, so what's your perspective on defendant rep representation? Cause it feels like once again, from a total outsider, uneducated perspective that, that, they might also have an impact on mass incarceration. Is that is that accurate, or is that just not something you're worrying about right now? Yes, yeah, I mean it, it, it's very accurate. Um, the the exclusion of public defenders and the, the, the drive down mass incarceration conversations are like makes me scratch my head. Um, but I can, you know. It's it's odd it's odd to me how uh, underwhelming they are represented in in the conversation about any mass incarceration because of how underwhelming the representation can be if it exists at all. There are places in this country still where people don't have lawyers standing next to them when things are happening. Um, and so if like if you go from there, like I was I would I was lucky to be in a place where there is a well resourced and they'd kill me for saying that, but a relatively well resourced federal office. Um, and still, you know, the, the, the restrictions on them in terms of time and caseloads, uh, and resources was, was evident. They represented their clients very, very well. Um, so I can only imagine when you start searching away resources. 
um, the caveat, um, both like what we're doing and what uh, the conversation on public defenders infers is that the structure of the system has to remain one where there are two sides. Um, and that's, that's, you know, sort of a longer conversation. Um, but I think, I think that might be why people are reticent to have a conversation about like, what if we just had pu better public defenders? It's like, well, that means everything stays the same, except the defense is stronger. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine a world where you are also training and impacting public defenders? I cannot because there are already organizations that are doing the work. Um, you know, Gideon's Promise is, is doing a great job. Natural has their own training program. Like the training, the training is good. Um, it's, it's again, just like <laughs> profoundly under-resourced. Uh, so they can't even, you know, keep people around to do the job. <clears throat> so tell me a little bit about your approach. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the graphic on your website um, and I can go to sort of get a sense of the content that's covered, but what is it, what is the experience like for an up and coming prosecutor who goes through your program? Um, so the experience is very depending on sort of what, where the, where the jurisdiction is just because of, uh, again, like we're new, but our, I'll give you uh, of a day in the life of our last class. Um, we were in Philadelphia with, uh, all the new prosecutors there, about, uh, 35 of them. And, um, they would come to a learning space that we had, um, granted to us by one of our. Um, very generous donors, um, Springpoint at the Hive, and they would come in there and we would divide the day into different experiences that were meant to sort of like bring content into their lives that they had not been exposed to before. And so um, we tried to keep the days and weeks thematic. So something the the you know in the juvenile justice or uh, juvenile justice week we had. Uh, two speakers about their experiences on being juvenile lifers who are now uh, back in society, having their rights uh, given back to them by the Supreme Court. Um, we then have uh, a, a piece of content for them to work around in small groups and have reflective discussions about what they'd heard to start putting concepts together and, and how they would work sort of like in the day-to-day -day job. Uh, we watched a, a brief documentary about the sentencing of a juvenile uh, getting life without parole and what, and, what, and bringing that back to, um, again, a, a reflective discussion, um, bringing up concepts that we had learned and talked about with men inside of prison who had visited earlier in the training. Um, we had a lecture on adolescent brain development uh, and its connection to crime and then did some really practical exercises with a doctor about basically sort of like forensic interviewing and how to de-escalate um, negative situations with the young people. Um, you know, sort of just like baking in all of these concepts and tying it again back to safety. Right. <clears throat> That's fascinating. So there's this in-person component where they go through training. Does it carry on? Are there other touch points from, from there or how do you stay in touch with these folks? Yeah, uh, we've built a we, we've done a, we've done it a few ways. We've built a community of, of prosecutors that we stay in touch with that actually uh, joined us in in Philadelphia as sort of fellows and mentors, uh, connecting with these new prosecutors and talking about everything on the country being uh, assistant district attorneys. Um, 
have a schedule of continuing uh, climate education events that are are both sort of like come and do reinforcement training, et cetera, but also um, cohort building around community events uh, and or projects that we started while we were there. So, yeah, it sounds like you're really providing a lot of support for these folks um, over time, which is really how you're going to see the biggest change, which is, which is great. Yeah. It, it started, it honestly started with just like supporting each other. You know, we come we call school, which is not a particularly um, cohorty environment. You know, it's really about getting to be number one and that job. And, and it's, it's just before cutthroat. And I'm sure for a lot of people it, it is cutthroat. Um, and then they go right to this job and the job is about like value and winning. And so it doesn't really, it doesn't really inspire uh, sort of like cooperative learning and cooperative experiences. So building that trust within and having a cohort of people that can support each other um, was a really important part of, of um, what we did. Yeah, having people uh, support the, the perspective and the belief and so that they feel like they are not alone in this process is, is huge. So when you think about the average citizen, to sort of wrap this up, what you know, what what should the average citizen be thinking about in terms of supporting young people with criminal records and also supporting a progressive criminal prosecutors? Uh, a few things. One is is there's a lot of edu- like public education. Um, it, it's and we can't put the on them to go out and find it. We ha- we have to think of better ways to inform the public about the way the criminal justice system works and um, how to, how to be bought in uh, because it's like, we're paying for it. Like th- this is our money. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that people throw them at and don't like follow up on it, but uh, this shouldn't be one of those things because it's like, we're doing irreparable damage to lots of things, including our own lives. Um, so that's just like one thing is, is, uh, awareness and education building. Another part of that is engaging in the system. So what I love seeing uh, are people who are doing court watches, um, just literally going going to the building and sitting in the building and watching things happen because two things are happening. This is growing. But two, when judges and prosecutors and defenders see uh, people who don't look, you know, this is it sounds awful, but don't look like they belong in the courtroom, um, you know, it's a, it's a very not, you see it happen. You know, you, it, you see the, the dynamic change when there are people in there because they recognize that they've been sort of like, we, we all get beaten into this routine and, you know, dignity and humanity sort of go out the window. So when you see that, that when, when there's observers, like you can see things change and that's, I think always a value add. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is just like, we spend so much time, and this is a follow-up on the education piece, I think. We spend so much time talking about crime and tough on crime and these things. Um, almost all of it is just fake news. You know, it's like we've, we've been given this pill that is completely uh, poisonous. It's just not a- accurate, the, the things that we think about crime in this country. Um, and we also think that, like, all of the power sits in the federal government, which is really... It, it disavows us of our power to change, radically change the criminal justice system locally. Wow. So uh, really being more involved in, in education sound like the, the key here. Well, 
Adam, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me and really for the important work that you're doing. And I hope that I get the chance to talk to you again in the future and hear about the uh, the influence that Prosecutor Impact is having. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.